And Ecclesiastes is intense, right? I remember the first time reading it. Uh, I think it was in middle school or high school. I'm like, what is this? This book is in the Bible? Um, it's fun to be able to preach today because today is my son Julian's first birthday. Uh, and because I'm a pastor, I get to show him up on the screen. So I, I've got a picture here of his growth over time. Uh, yeah, he's got crazy big feet right now. Oh, it's fun. Um, as I've been reflecting on this first year of parenting, one of the biggest changes in my life has been my perception of time. Uh, for example, it felt like we were in the newborn stage for about seven years. Uh, time moves slow, so slowly when he's screaming at 2 a.m. Uh, and uh, for those of you who are in the, the nap scheduling phase of parenting, how much time do you spend thinking about, okay, so when do they need to go to sleep, and then when do I need to wake them up? So we need to go to this thing, and then i got to feed them, and oh, it's crazy. Time moves so slowly, and yet time also moves so very quickly. Uh, it feels like Julian was born yesterday. I mean, how did this little lump that could cry and sleep only now grow up into this little boy who can walk and communicate? Now, the reason I bring this up is not just to show off my boy, whom I do love, but also to illustrate how time is simultaneously one of the things that we think the most about and we think the least about. What do I mean? Well, for many of us, we spend a lot of energy thinking about the short term of our lives, whether it's the busyness of school starting or it's our changing work hours. Most of you, if I asked, could tell me the details of this upcoming week and what's on your schedule. And when, on Monday, I've got this and this and this and this. We think about productivity and efficiency and what is the best use of our time. And these are good things. It's not wrong to think about those things. But I've also observed that we don't often think about time in the long term. My guess is that very few of us have thought about what we want our lives to look like in five or 10 or 20 years. We're much too busy with the here and now to consider and pause and reflect, what, what season am I in and plan for the next season? But even though we're kind of in the here and now, we barely live in the present moment. I mean, we rush from meeting to meeting to meeting to dinner to soccer practice to bed, then we wake up and we do it all over again. Very rarely do we force ourselves to slow down and be fully present where, we're, where we are. So what I want you to see this morning is that thinking about time is not an esoteric or philosophical question. Our issues with time have very practical implications for how we live. How can I use my time in a wise way? How can I know what stage of life I'm in right now? How can I plan for the next stage of life? How can I live in the present and yet not worry about the future? How can I think about the future and not forget the present? We need help with time. And today, we have the benefit of sitting at the feet of an ancient sage known as the preacher. And he's thought a lot about time and he's written down his reflections for us. So the preacher wants us to answer this main question. How should God's people think about and live in time? How should God's people think about and live in time? So we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 to 13. I encourage you to turn there now. I'll also have it up on the screen for you. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a little book. It's after the Psalms and Proverbs. But if you hit Isaiah, you've gone too far. Turn around. So there are three sections in this text. We've got the passage of time, 
the problem of time and then the pleasures of time. The passage, the problem, and the pleasures of time. So let's dive right into the first section, the passage of time in verses one through eight. Read along with me in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to lie, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Some of the older folks have that song from the 60s stuck in your head right now, right, by the birds. Sorry, Amy wouldn't let me add it to the worship set. I I asked for you, but maybe next time. Many of us have heard this poem before, and yet I'm guessing that most of us haven't really thought all that long about what it means. So verse 1 is what sets it all up. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And by the word season, we understand the preachers doesn't mean fall, winter, spring, summer, but rather circumstances, situations. Notice, too, that he says, a time for every matter under heaven. Now, all through Ecclesiastes, over and over again, the preacher speaks about life not under heaven, but under the sun. And that's the hevel or vapor smoke that the video was talking about. It's the frustration and the randomness of life in a fallen world. That's under the sun. But by saying that there's also a time for everything under heaven, he's pointing out that God has oversight and control over everything, even in a fallen world. And so the preacher is actually giving us a sort of riddle right here. He's saying life is very complex because we live in a world that is both fallen and it's under God's sovereign hand. And so the riddle is this. There is an appropriate God-appointed time for everything that humans can do. And then he lists out 28 activities that humans can do, some of which seem positive to us, some of which seem negative. Let me just pause here to acknowledge that these verses are so easy to misinterpret. They could be used to justify any number of terrible things, from the verbal abuser who says, well, it's time for me to speak and it's time for you to be silent, or the mass shooter who decides that it's the time to kill. But these verses are not meant to be a justification for wrong behavior, nor are they meant to justify any decision that you happen to be making already. Rather, remember, this is wisdom literature. These are wisdom prompts here. These are rhetorical questions that are meant to make you ask more questions. So we are supposed to read this poem and ask of the riddle, okay, so how can a wise and godly person do this thing and also do the opposite of that thing? What are the situations in which one would do that? And we're supposed to answer that question with other wise people. So communities of wisdom, like our city groups, are good places to work these things out. Now, we don't have time to go through all 28 examples, but what I want to do is help get you started so that on your own time, you can keep pondering this poem and working it out for yourself. So first of all, 
While these activities that are listed, they can kind of seem random when you first read the poem, scholars through the years have seen that there is a logical order to the poem. So let me show you. The, the poem covers every area of human existence. He's taking a step back and looking at all of life. So it begins with the beginning and the end of life in verse 2. Every human was born, and every human will die. And we go, duh, that's not wisdom. That's obvious. <laughs> I, I get it. But this is wisdom literature. We're supposed to step back and think and question. For example, we might say, well, I often live as though I am immortal. I don't often think about my own mortality. What if I just stopped and meditated on this verse for a moment and I said, there's a time for me to die. I can't stop it. I don't know when it will happen, but it will happen. And so all of my life is in the hands of God. It's an example of what it might look like to use this poem as wisdom literature to get you to think about your own life. Moving on from there, we see a pattern to the topics. So we have a section on human relationships, and then our emotions, or what's internal to us. Then relationships again, and then possessions, or what's external to us. And these are, could be physical possessions, like a home or a car. could also be things like a job, career, family. And then one final section on relationships. So let me touch on the emotions and then possessions and then relationships. So first, emotions. In verse 4, we're told that for everyone, there is a time for joy and there's a time for sorrow. And the wisdom principle here is that there is a right time for every emotion. We might know our own personality tendencies. Some of you may be more naturally cheerful and smiling. Others of you may be more naturally melancholy. And the preacher says that to be either one all the time is to live a half-life. It's not a full human experience. This is a, a remarkably sophisticated and balanced view of human emotions. And it's similar to what Kyle said a few weeks ago when we looked at the book of Job. We said emotions are important. They're not to be ignored. And they're temporary. They pass and change all the time, just like the seasons, and this is normal and good. So there is a time for everything, including our emotions. What about possessions or achievements, the external stuff like cars, clothing, career goals, status? Look at verse 6. The preacher says, there's a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow. So sometimes it is good to seek what you want, like a promotion, a spot on the football team, a new house, a spouse, children. But according to the preacher, it is also good sometimes to keep what you have or even give away what you have or even abandon your ambitions. Again, this poem is trying to help us pause and consider our own lives. All of us have goals and pursuits, and that's good. But wisdom forces us to ask, is this the time for me to pursue a goal or to pursue contentment with what I already have? And then finally, we have many, many lines on relationships here. This is where we're talking about friends and family and romance and partnerships and neighbors and all that. I, I think relationships get the most attention in this poem because the way that human beings interact with each other is so very complex. 
There was some buzz recently about Google's Lambda AI. Have you heard this? It's a chat bot which is designed to replicate human conversations. So you would type something to it and it would reply to you and then you would reply back and you would reply and chat with it. And it, it got so sophisticated that some people were even wondering, is this AI sentient? Like, are we in sci-fi world here? It sounds like a person who has independent thoughts but while this technology is incredible and a little bit disturbing, uh, AI experts at Stanford said Lambda is a software program designed to produce sentences in response to sentence props, implying that human beings are not like that. We're not computers where you just, oh, we hear a sentence and then we give a sentence back and that's how it works. No AI can have wisdom because wisdom says that every relationship we have, every conversation we have, every person and situation requires a different response and attitude. And so we come to relationship verses like verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. How do we respond to different people in different conversations in different situations? I think the wisdom question, if I can summarize the whole poem, is this. In this particular relationship, should I move toward someone, against someone, or move away from this person? Now, here's what I mean. Moving toward them, these would be the examples of loving and healing and building them up. This could look like encouragement or compliments. Moving against would be the examples like hate or war, like righteous anger at injustice or cruelty. Is this the time for me to speak up and put a stop to evil? And I don't know that the preacher is saying that there's literally a time to kill or for war. We could talk about that and, and debate it. But he is acknowledging that there are times when, like our God, we need to stand up against people who are harming and taking advantage of others. And then there's moving away. These are the examples like keeping silent or refraining from embracing, distancing yourself from someone. So let's use a practical example here. So say uh, you have a female friend who's come up to you and she wants your advice on her new boyfriend. She's like, what do you think of him? And you're like, this is a minefield. This conversation could go any number of directions. Should I move toward them, move against them, or move away from them? So moving toward them would be saying something like, I love him. You guys are perfect together. Keep going. This is great. You have my full blessing. Moving against them would be saying something like, listen, I got to be honest. He is bad news. You got to get out of this right now. It's not going to go well. And then moving away would be refraining from speaking. You might say, listen, I need a little bit more time before I make a full judgment. Any one of those responses might be the appropriate response depending on the situation, but wisdom is not automatically giving just one response to everybody, but figuring out what is needed in this moment. It's all well and good to reflect on time in the abstract. I mean, I was a philosophy major, so I could do the theoretical stuff all day, but at some point we have to ask, okay, so what's the point of this all? What is the point of this riddle? Or remember our main question, how should God's people think about and live in time? I think this poem gives us an initial answer. Wise human beings do not attempt to control time, but rather make peace with the season they are in. Now, controlling time would be saying something like, it is always the time for this, it is never the time for that. 
Or controlling time could look like longing for a season of life that was in the past or straining for a season of life that is in the future. Maybe you're wrestling this with this right now. You, you think, oh, man, life would be so great if I could just be where I used to be. Or man, life would be so great if I could just get to this place that I'm pushing toward. But in doing that way, in living that way, you're missing the present. No season has all the joy. And so wisdom is making peace with the season that you are in. Wisdom is asking, what time is it for me right now? The preacher says there's a time for everything. Is it the time for X or for Y? Should I do this or do the opposite? You know, maybe this poem could actually be part of your decision-making process. Whenever you have a big life decision that you need to make or something significant happens in your life, maybe you pull out this poem and you go back and you pray. Say, okay, Lord, there's a time for every season. What season am I in? And how do you want me to live in this season? Give me wisdom here. So that's the passage of time. Let's move on to the problem of time in verses 9 to 11. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I call this section the problem of time because these verses present us with a universal puzzle. We might call it a paradox or a, a catch-22. There's a situation we are in that we cannot escape from because of contradictory rules. But you might not have seen it just on that first initial reading. After his poem on how there's a, a time for everything, the preacher asks the question in verse 9 that some of you who are not philosophically bent might be asking. He's like, what's the point of it all? <laughs> you know, what gain do we get from our toil? And then he immediately answers his own question in the next verse. He says, everything in our lives, everything that fills the little corners of our time, it comes from God. And what's more, there's a beauty to it. There's an order. If we go back to that, that key word, hevel, or smoke, or vapor, much of life, we walk through life not knowing where we're going, where we've come from. It's, it's all confusing. We can't see the big picture. But sometimes... We catch a little glimpse of, oh, that's why this happened when it happened. It fits together. Melissa and I experienced this when we came to Rock Hill. I, I was looking for pastoral jobs. I had applied to 35 different churches, and I couldn't find anything. But when the Lord brought us here, we could look back at our lives and say, oh, I see it now. I see why this happened, and God had a plan for how it would happen. Maybe you've had that experience as well in your own life, when in hindsight, you can see that everything aligned perfectly as it should, even though when you were in the middle of it, it looked like you were in a maze and you were lost. In hindsight, you could see that this is exactly how it needed to happen. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has a master plan. He is in control of all that happens and when all should happen. So what's the problem? We see it in verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. The preacher has observed something about human beings 
He's seen that even though in many ways we are like other animals that live and eat and relate to each other and then die, there's something unique about human beings. There's something peculiar. We have this instinctive yearning for something bigger, something beyond us, something transcendent, something immortal, and he calls it eternity. Franz Dielich, a German theologian, wrote, God has established in man an impulse, leading him beyond that which is temporal toward the eternal. It lies within his nature not to be contented with the temporal, but amid the ceaseless changes of time to console himself by directing his thoughts to eternity. Or to put it more simply, There's one of C.S. Lewis's most famous lines, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And we've all felt this, whether or not we were able to recognize it at the time. You can feel it at a funeral when you suspect that there's just something that's not right about death. feels out of alignment with everything else. You can feel it when you're deeply in love and you think, I I never want my time with this person to come to an end. I wish this moment could last forever. You can catch a glimpse of it when you see the night sky bursting with stars and you're wondering, what is my place in this vast, complex universe? I saw it when my grandfather died. He was a Christian. He had a slow decline from cancer. And there came a a turning point in which he didn't need to fight any longer to remain in this world because he was ready to go on to the next one. Now, as his family, we weren't ready to lose him, but I could see the change in him. He was ready. God has put eternity into man's heart. We've been talking about how God's people are to think about and live in time, but what if we were made to live beyond time? What if we were made to live forever? And that is exactly the message of the Bible. In the opening pages of Genesis, God creates a world that is full of life and full of goodness. There is no death there. But human beings rebel against God, and as a consequence of our rebellion, God says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Then when we read genealogies, either of our own or, for example, the one in Genesis 5, the main drumbeat that we hear is, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That's the march of time that Ecclesiastes is talking about. And so we're caught in this paradox. You were made to live forever, but you live in time, and you can only catch a glimpse of eternity every now and then. That's why the preacher says in verse 11, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There is a master plan, but we can't see it much of the time. We catch glimpses of it, but we can't comprehend what God is doing. We want to live forever, but we don't know how to get back. You were made to live for eternity, but you don't. And this is where we come to Jesus, a human man and God eternal. 
I put John 1, the beginning of John, up here. Notice the time language here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Jesus, God not only put eternity into a man's heart, he took on mortality and time. The God who existed before time, the God who made the first minute, the God who knows history from beginning to end, this God entered into time to be with us. It gives new meaning to the Christmas story of Emmanuel, God with us. He didn't just become human, he became human in time. He became mortal. The eternal God became a baby, and he grew up just like Julian did. This is what Luke notices a couple times. The child grew, God grew, and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And when Jesus was grown and it was the time for him to proclaim the good news of salvation from sin and death, Jesus promised not just a better life now, but eternal life. John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. The paradox of human beings is that we are eternal beings that die, but Jesus breaks the paradox. He provides a way out of the catch-22. For the preacher, the clock is an enemy because it just means we are getting closer to death. But Jesus gives us a way to reconcile the relentless march of time and the eternity that is within us. He gives present hope for eternity. If you feel in your heart today, whether or not you are a Christian, if you are feeling like there must be more to life than this, I I was made for something better than this. Then you're right. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. And he died on a cross and rose from the tomb to disarm death and give you life and give it to you abundantly. To put it in the language of Ecclesiastes, Jesus gives you a time to be reborn so that you will never die. How? How? by believing in the gospel, the good news of eternal life in Jesus. Do not be fooled in thinking that this life is all there is. This life is good. It's beautiful. We'll talk about that in a moment. And yet, how do you reconcile the eternity within you? Jesus does. He gives hope for something greater, something that we were made for. I love the way C.S. Lewis ends the Chronicles of Narnia with this vision of eternity. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. So this morning, if you feel the eternity pulsing within your heart, know that your life is just the cover and the title page. Do you want to read the rest of the story? Believe that Jesus can give you eternal life. 
Now let's turn to the last two verses of this passage because this is where the preacher gets very immensely practical. The pleasures of time in verses 12 to 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So the preacher ends by saying, listen, we can't control time, but we can enjoy the time that we have as a gift. We don't worship the gift itself. We don't cling to time, but we worship the giver who gives generously. There's wise humility here in accepting our limitations and enjoying what is ours. It's, It's the classic Gandalf line, you know, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. It's the posture of Psalm 31:15, my times are in your hand. Now remember that our main question was how should God's people think about and live in time? I just want to sum it up in three phrases for you. Live in the present, plan for the future, look forward to eternity. First, live in the present. This is this is verses 12 to 13. Soak up the moment you are in and enjoy it fully. Do not be blind to the present moment, either looking far towards the past or far towards the future. This is a biblical kind of mindfulness. For example, don't just eat food for sustenance. Don't just shovel it down. Oh, this will keep this body running. Experience a meal. Savor it. Find joy in a good dish shared with people you love. Maybe think about this. When you eat lunch today, even if it's just a, a PB&J, PB&J sandwich, you know? And what, what a marvel a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is. Have you ever paused to think about it? It is sweet, and yet it's filling. Amazing. The, the texture of the bread mixes perfectly with the jelly and the smooth or crunchy peanut butter, depending on your choice. It's fantastic. You add a little honey in there, my goodness, it's biblical shalom right there. <laughs> Another example that the preacher gives to us don't just labor for a paycheck. Experience your work, even if it's not a job that you enjoy. I was a custodian when I was in graduate school, and I wasn't happy about it for a little while. Until this one day when I I had this weird realization that I really found pleasure in a clean bathroom. When you're all done and there's no weird odors, it's just lemony fresh. You know, it's strange, but it really did improve my job. So I don't know what your work looks like, but what if tomorrow you went to work with your eyes open to all the amazing wonders around you. There are daily miracles. There's a book of prayers um, that Melissa and I love. It's called Every Moment Holy. I recommend you check it out. And it's got prayers for changing diapers, prayers for doing laundry, prayers for when you're gardening, prayers for when you're sick, prayers for when you can't sleep at night. Every moment, an opportunity to praise the Lord and worship Him for what's going on around you. Live in the present, but also plan for the future. Remember the poem at the beginning of chapter three. It's good to study the seasons and know what season am I in? What season am I going into? We can plan for the future by saying, I can't control the future. Only God does that. 
but I can use wisdom with an open hand to organize what's around me and strategize and cast vision and set goals. And if it changes, I'm in a different season than I thought I was in, and I go back to wisdom. And if you are a Christian, you do this all by remembering that we are not trapped within the clock. We have eternity to look forward to, the great story. And so whenever life begins to feel like hevel, like despair or drudgery, we can pray the prayer, for example, that's on the last page of the Bible, Revelation 22. Again, notice the time language here and some of the last words that Jesus spoke to his followers. Jesus said, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And we say, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the eternity that is within our hearts. Thank you that you have made us as your image bearers. Thank you for the moments that we've recognized and the moments that we've let slip by. I pray that as we go from this place, we would see both that you have a master plan and that we would accept that we don't need to understand it all the time. We just need to live faithfully with what you have for us. So in our moments, in our conversations and relationships and emotions and work and all, all the rest this week, all the rest in this moment, would you be with us? We pray this in the name of Emmanuel Jesus. Amen.